Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Get German Football News podcast, where this week we'll be celebrating all things Bayern Munich after they won their sixth Champions League last weekend, as well as catching up with the latest transfer news in the Bundesliga. I'm your host again for the evening, Nathan Evans, and this week I've been joined by two of our regular guests, the first of which had PSG was going to win in the Champions League, not to forget, <laughs> and Drew Thompson. <laughs> Had to get it in early. It didn't take you long, did it? About 45 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> How are you guys? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. All good. And also our second guest for the night, Tom Fenton. Uh, hi, guys. Do I get a prize of some sort for, for predicting <laughs> Euro Bayern? <laughs> I did say low scoring too, so I mean, did. pretty much bad. I mean, on. nailed it, to be fair. <laughs> My penalty shout were a bit out, but uh, yeah. I'll take some solace in saying Bayern Munich. But yeah, like mentioned, obviously the main talking point of the week came with Bayern Munich's 1-0 victory over PSG in the Champions League final. It was the German champion's sixth Champions League victory, and in the process, Bayern became the first team to win every match in the competition from start to finish during a single campaign. PSG obviously had the chances on the night, but failed to make them count, and the difference came with a nice cushioned header from Kingsley Coman in the first half. If we come to you first, Drew, in simple terms, where was this game won for Bayern and lost for PSG? Within the first 25 minutes. Um, and that's kind of the same trend that we saw in the semifinal against Lyon, where the chances were there. And I think we kind of both uh, all said as such on the last time we discussed it, where on another night, if they were 2 nil up, you know, you, you would think that maybe they would have progressed to the final. And you can say the same thing about PSG. I think on overall... Over the course of 90 minutes, Bayern ended up being the better side, and, and the scoreline reflects that. But on another night, they could have, you could have been asking the same question again from the semifinal. And certainly, I think the, the overall better chances kind of felt to PSG. Um, that's kind of telling. But as we said, Bayern find a way, and if you let them work themselves into the match, once you get to a certain point, if you do not take your chances, they're just going to win. And we've seen that time and time again this season from them in all, every competition they've performed in. So, yeah, once it hit 35 minutes, I think that was kind of it. I even think I put out a tweet saying, if, you know, if PSG doesn't score by 30, 35 minutes, Bayern will go on and win, and they did. So I wasn't terribly inaccurate with my with my guess that PSG, <laughs> I should say PSG could win, but they didn't. But, yeah, I think that's the thing. Was, I think it was those opening 20, 25 minutes really to set the tone for the match in typical fashion. I think there's not much more to really say about, about that particular one for me. Yeah, and just uh, from you as well, Tom. Yeah, I, I echo a lot of those uh, sentiments. It, it really was about um, just classic Bayern in, in the sense of, you know, you ha- if you shoot, you have to shoot to kill, and, and PSG didn't. They had their chances. They had good chances too. Um, and it was one of those. It was just you knew at some stage Bayern were going to come good and they were going to have a chance of their own. Um, and, and ultimately they took it. You know, I think it was a case of, of Bayern's big game players stepped up to a bigger degree than PSG's, you could argue, because Thiago, who may or may not be leaving, uh, was instrumental in, in the goal and played brilliantly overall. Um, you know, obviously Coman came in and and had a had a great cameo, got got a vital goal as well. And yeah, for me it was just about you know um, when it mattered, uh, Bayern's big game players stood up. Kimmich as well was was brilliant on the right hand side and got another assist. So yeah, I think I think that's that's where the game turned. And um, it you know it it really was sort of classic Bayern in the sense of you know if you give them a chance they're going to take it. And but at the same time it was a very different Bayern in the sense that you could see they were 
visibly uh, slightly worried or concerned about PSG's counter-attacking ability and that's why there was a bit of a stalemate at times and it was more low scoring than many of us predicted so yeah it's just it's one of those and, and this is a team that just knows how to win and they seem to have that DNA in them from the 70s and the 2013 side and you know somehow a lot of these younger players have it in them too already and yeah I, I just thought you know Bayern took the chances PSG didn't and um, a relatively close game uh, tipped in Bayern's favour and you've got to give them credit because they got the job done yet again yeah definitely and just Obviously, going back to before the match, one big call that Hansi Flick made was his decision to start Kingsley Coman over even Perisic. You know, was that fundamentally the biggest decisive factor on the night, Drew? I mean, I know he scored, but at times he just terrorised um, Tio Kera. I think that was kind of the point. In Perisic and, and Coman are two very different players. Uh, I think, you know, Perisic's industry, he, he tracks back quite well. You know, he offers that additional cover for someone like Alfonso Davies, who, when he makes his overlapping runs, if he gets caught up, you know, Perisic will track back. But Coleman was, I feel, was specifically put into this match because it was going to give that additional outlet. You know, you could play him over the top. You can you can play the ball to feet, and he would, he'd run at Kara, and, and Kara did struggle quite a bit over the course of 90 minutes. And I think it was, it was a dynamic that maybe proved to be a bit of cutting edge for Bayern in a way. Um, I know he got the goal, obviously, and it's a good story where he, you know, he final against his, his old club and he ended up scoring the winner. But I think it was pretty, pretty uh, decisive in terms of finding a weakness and, and, and genuinely targeting. And, and that's kind of what you need to do in that final. And we were talking about before on, on that last episode about you know who, who's going to sort of stick or twist first. I don't think... Bayern really changed too much of their overall approach, but that one tweak in the 11 gave them that dynamic that maybe you would have needed to do a whole tweak for if he wasn't in the 11 and rather just insert comment. It gives you that little bit extra 5% about what you're able to do on a moment's notice and it ends up making a difference. Yeah, obviously he had a big match. Um, just a question for you both as well on Bayern's individual performances on the night. We come to you this time, Tom, first. Spoke about the big performances before when you just, yeah, when we were cap- recapping the game earlier. Who, who was the difference maker for you or who was perhaps your man of the match? Um, I think for me personally, I, I, I was drawn strongly towards Thiago simply because of, I think his, his goal involvement was great and his overall play was, was great. But at, at times he just seemed to inject a bit of calmness because there were occasions when PSG's you know, intensity and, and pressing and, and sort of quickness on the counter looked like it was going to just destabilise Bayern a, a tad. And, you know, Thiago would spin out of trouble um, when, you know, he was, he was getting closed down and he would just effortlessly at times, you know, spray a ball out wide and, and just seemingly calm things down a little bit. And for me, he was just, he was, he was so crucial and, and so involved in everything good that Bayern did. And of course, there are a couple of mistakes here and there, but generally, I just thought he he just exuded so much sort of calmness and, and and was so composed. And even on the sidelines, when he was taken off late on, you could see him how much this meant to him and his geeing up his teammates and you know uh, uh, trying to inspire them. So, I, I would say um, Thiago for me, obviously Coman, and I think Kimmich too um, needs a, a big mention because of his his just his ability to slot back in at right back in the, in the Champions League and. And not look out of place at all, and just to, to to be so sort of, you know, I mean, he's he's going to get the comparisons to to Philip Lahm for the rest of his career, but you could just see that 
the way he seamlessly goes from position to position. And I just think he deserves a big shout out too for his role. But um, for me personally, I think I'd say Thiago, just. Yeah, I think personally I'd go with Joshua Kimmich. I mean, yeah. from, from watching it as a neutral, if you were obviously waiting for Kylian Mbappe to do a lot. And I just think he, Kimmich just handled him for the majority of the match. Obviously yeah. a few times he got away from him, but he just expertly just marked him out of the match and... It just never really got going for uh, Mbappe and Neymar as well. You could say same question to you as well, Drew. Who did you have as uh, your man of the match on the night? I think you're always kind of entitled to want to go with a goal scorer considering the story, but I would go with Kimmich as well. I just feel, I, I think there were a couple of moments where he did get assistance against Mbappe. I think there were, I can think of maybe three or four moments where Mbappe was double or triple marked and just, just to kind of snuff him out before he can really get going. But that doesn't, that doesn't take anything away from his performance. I think whether he's playing deeper in midfield or at right back, he still offers you the same sort of character traits on the pitch that make him, for me, one of the, the first names on the team sheet for Bayern moving forward under Flick. Just the way he reads the game, he still, he still offers you that creativity at, at right back, even if it's not in center midfield. I mean, that's evident by the assist that he had. I think it was just an all-action kind of display from a player who, you know, I think is quickly putting himself in the discussion of handedly one of the best defenders in Europe, not just left or right back, but across any part of the back four. I think he's, he was absolutely brilliant. He's been absolutely brilliant, you know, since he really came into his own since he to the club. Yeah, and obviously we spoke about um, Hansi Flick's big decision to start coming and Perisic. Just to touch on Hansi Flick a bit more in depth, I've joined the club when you're languishing, I think, in the uh, fourth spot in the Bundesliga table, just lost to Eintracht Frankfurt 5-1. Since then, he's overseen uh, winning the Bundesliga, obviously the German Cup, and now the Champions League. His record's remarkable when you look at it. It's, I think it's 36 matches in charge across all competitions. He's won 33 of them, drawn one and lost two. Tom, what has he changed at Bayern? Like, obviously, he's got such a good squad, but what what was the big change for them, do you think? Um, I think fundamentally for me, he just brought the dressing room together and he and he unified the club again and he and he got everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. I mean, I know that, you know, with previous managers with Kovac and so forth, what I think what you saw was a lot of disharmony, um, a lot of mis of sort of disillusioned players who weren't really sure of the direction the club was going in. And I think Flick, for everything great that he's done tactically, because Drew mentioned, you know, playing Common rather than Perisic. He's done a lot of brilliant tactical tweaks that should not be overlooked at all. But for me, his first job coming in was to simply, well, to simplify, to, to take things back to basics, to bring everybody together, to, to really create a, a sort of a sense of a team. And you see now when Bayern score, I mean, it didn't matter if it was, you know, PS, PSG or, or, you know, or Paderborn. The, the, the way they celebrate a goal is almost the same. But there's that intensity and you see they're just so fired up and so hungry for success and I think Flick emanates that from the sidelines and um, yeah for me he, he just he got everybody on the same page he simplified roles he did a, a, some he, he almost stumbled upon a brilliant new system with Alaba at centre-back and Davies coming in at, at left-back and, and how instrumental uh, he's been so for me yeah I, I think he's almost done as a Dan at Madrid and in terms of bringing together all of these egos and all of these various, uh, you know, players with different different things to bring to the table, and he's, he's made it fit beautifully. Uh, and, and again, uh, you shouldn't overlook his tactical input and the things he's done in, in that regard. But for me, he just got everybody to believe in the project again, and he just 
you know, he, 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 he sort of re rekindled a, a happy dressing room environment. And, and that was so important after Kovac to bring everybody together and to make the hierarchy happy as well, because we know at Bayern, it's always political. Um, so yeah, for me, it, it's the perfect man for that role right now. And I'm not sure how many other managers could have done that at the time, because he's just stripped everything back and he's, he's brought Bayern back to where you, you could arguably say they should be as a, as a, as a force, you know. Yeah, like I mentioned before, he came in in December, obviously, they weren't doing so great. He's come out eight months later, or however long with the COVID um, suspension with the Bundesliga, the German Cup, and obviously the Champions League. Where does he rank in terms of the best managers in Europe at the minute for you, Drew? Look, I didn't want to be punished with my prediction by being given this question, so I'm kind <laughs> of like, <laughs> come on. It's, t- it's tough, like... And I kind of take that same similar stance with when I get into discussions about Alfonso Davies because a lot of people like to think that he's the best left back in Europe. And I kind of err on the side of caution with that because it is in overall such a small sample size. It's hard to make a distinction after one season. And I think it's hard to make a distinction about a manager after, you know, give or take one season by himself. I think you could say that he certainly had one of the most impressive starts to anybody's, you know, managerial run. In, in the history of the sport, but how he deals with that kind of moving forward is a bit different. I think that the one thing we have to consider is that some people would say that maybe coming in after Kovac, that he was under more pressure. I would actually ironically say the reverse. I would say he was under less pressure because I don't think it could have gotten any worse in the eyes of the fan base and the board after Kovac. So I think almost allowing players to, to be free on the pitch and to be Bayern players, I think was, was the logical thing to do. And I think he just made, the, the, as we just discussed, he made the simple choice. And the simple choice usually is always the right one. So I don't think that, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a question of him necessarily rising to occasion. It's if he was just being a, a logical thinking manager. If you look what's in front of you, if you have that kind of that ability on the pitch in, 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 your, in your team, in the depth of that squad, the last thing you want to do is make things more complicated. The last thing you want to do is make things rigid, which is why you have other managers throughout history who, who've just done similar. You know, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal had such a, a gifted technical squad. The last thing he would want to do was ramshackle them down to not make them allowed to express themselves. And I think he did kind of the same thing with, with Bayern. My, my question moving forward is going to be, now there is pressure now because he's, he threw the gauntlet and they did set this record with Champions League. They did perform so incredibly well in the Bundesliga post him coming in. I think they raised the bar now. So now I think this is where he actually will have to deal with pressure because now fans and, and the board and even a lot of the players are going on want to crave similar success. And, you know, there's no bigger motivator than winning. They want to go out and win again. So now that they've, you know, they, they won Champions League, something that Pep wasn't able to do, now people are going to expect them to be the front runner and to go on and win next season. And they're going to want them to keep that same level of performance up in the Bundesliga next year. So I think he's going to be under far more pressure next season than this one, or this one that just ended. So the jury's still out for me. I think he's done brilliantly, but I don't think you can say he's the best manager in Europe after, after you know, 35 odd matches. So I think you need a bigger sample size for that. Yeah, fair enough. And, um, just to kind of wrap up this Champions League discussion, uh, obviously seen on social media this week, um, comparing this winning Bayern Champions League side to the Bayern team who beat Dortmund at Wembley in 2013. 
both Trevor winning sides, of course, both sides included Manuel Neuer in net, Jerome Boateng and David Alaba at the back, and Thomas Muller in midfield. Obviously, Robert Lewandowski famously playing for Bival B on that occasion. Um, if we come to you then, Tom, first, which side would you have as the strongest? I mean, it's a question I've given a lot of thought to um, over the past uh, week or so, because, again, it's really easy to kind of be an after-timer and to, and to reflect on it and say that this Bayern team is the best thing ever and to, you know, because of the immense talent and, and, and so forth. But I think it's really important to remember how good the vintage of 2013 was because, you know, they took on uh, some incredibly difficult opponents to, to be, you know, you're talking about Klopp's Dortmund, who they defeated domestically and in Europe, you're talking about a pretty good Barcelona type side. I mean, okay, this may not have been the greatest ever, but it was a pretty handy Barcelona side with, you know, plenty of talent there. Just fresh off of, uh, I think, uh, you know, two years prior, you had sort of Pep's dream team of 2011 and, and still many of the players from that side were still kicking around and they would go on to win the Champions League three years later and they defeated that Barcelona side, you know, 7-0 uh, over two legs. So it was an incredible unit back then. You're talking about a side that, that it, you know, had the sort of the spine of the successful Germany team in 2014 as well with, you know, peak prime Philipp Lahm, Schweinsteiger, Neuer, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Thomas Müller, um, who I think you could make a case for all of them to, well, to an extent being in their primes and being at their very best. And so for me, I, I probably just edge it with the 2013 team because of who they beat because of just, uh, just because of the nature of the way they won too. And, uh, and they were ruthless. I know this team is ruthless, but this team seems to have found a winning formula and, and they've just stuck to that. And there's a lot of players in this current crop who I think can get even better. And the one thing I'd say, and, and many may disagree with this, but we have to be honest, in my opinion, in saying that it's not been the greatest Champions League uh, we've ever seen in terms of the, the quality overall. You know, the Champions got knocked out in the, in the round of 16. You know, Man City were not where they should have been as a, as a side. Madrid, of course, knocked out by City. And and PSG, a very good side, of course, in, in, in an attacking sense. But for me, there's still a lot of holes and a lot of flaws in that team. But... Um, uh, the 2013 side, they defeated Klopp's Dortmund. They defeated a brilliant Barcelona team. And so for me, I'd give them the edge just about because of the manner in which they won it and the, and, and the, the teams they defeated. But again, again, we could be having this conversation in five years' time and and this side goes on to win numerous domestic titles, numerous European titles. Maybe they do the what the mid, side of the mid-70s did and they win three in a row. Who knows? But... At this current point, I'd just give it to the 2013 side because uh, I feel like they were just more complete uh, and they were harder to beat, in my opinion. Yeah, Drew, do you have the same opinion? I do, and again, I think more so with that 2013 side over the, the current one, I think the, the current one still is really adept at masking its weaknesses, but I still think that there are weaknesses that are there to be exploited, and we saw that in the semifinal and the final, and it just didn't come off of the opposition. I, I don't think you had that same fear with the 2013 side. I mean, that's probably the only thing I would do that I have to add. And I do think that you have to look at the fact that they did beat that Barcelona side as, as maybe the hallmark reason as to why you put them just ahead. There are always going to be questions about PSG under under Tuchel. And they did so well to get to the final, obviously. But um, I, if you compare those two sides you know, on any given day, you'd probably pick Bayern 10 out of 10 times. Um, really, despite 
PSG's forward line. Um, you just look at the, the, the balance and the depth. So, uh, yeah, I just feel like getting past Klopp's orbit and, and that's, as you said, getting, beating out Barcelona as well. Um, over a two-leg affair, you have to say that, yeah, I think 2013 for me as well. Yeah, I think I'd agree as well. I mean, like you kind of said, Tom, obviously talking back then in the Champions League about home and away uh, ties as well. I mean, not seeing that towards the end this year, so maybe that's a big factor in it as well. But away from the Champions League then, and back to Germany in the Bundesliga, again this week, seeing some big transfer stories come to the fore, perhaps the biggest week so far in terms of transfer. Perhaps the biggest move coming with Juventus signing American midfielder Weston McKenney. Uh, the deal sees him move to Turin initially on loan. I think it's for around four and a half million euros with an option to the end of the season, few obligation. Uh, there's an obligation to buy if he makes enough appearances, I believe. Um, maybe if you come with you, Drew. Is, is it a good move for McKenney at this point in his career? Or is he a you know, worry here that he's going to be at the back of a very long line of very strong central midfielders at the assigned club? I think this, this <laughs> I, I tweeted about this when the GGFN account posted a video of him arriving in Turin. This makes absolutely no sense to me, and I, I don't understand it. And I, I don't even know if they brought him in for footballing reasons. I kind of side with the opinion that he was brought in for marketing reasons. In the U.S., Juve are ramping up their presence in the American market a, a, a fantastically great deal. They're opening youth academies here. You know, obviously, this is a very large Italian-American population. There's a large Italian immigrant population here, so Juve already has a fan base kind of already built in um, in a lot of the major metropolitan areas, tapping into the American market, maybe similar to how maybe why Chelsea partly targeted Pulisic for, this, for the same reason. It just doesn't make any sense from a footballing perspective, which is why I have to side with the fact that it had to be done for other reasons. You can't look at that Juve side and then look at McKinney and say that he's going to get any considerable minutes in that, in that, in that 11 moving forward this year. I would be shocked if he started more than 10 Serie A matches, to, to be honest with you. And it's not that he does, he's not a player of promise. It's not that he doesn't have the tools to be successful moving forward in his career. I just feel that he's not there yet. I think he's still pretty raw in a lot of areas. And I think he just needs that refinement that Juve aren't going to really give him. If, if Juve go out and buy a, a player that's under 23, usually they can come in and they can genuinely contend for starting 11 births like Benton is a prime example, Dybala another example, they were ready for Juve even though they were younger. McKinney isn't. I think I much would have preferred to see him get that move to Southampton under Hasmuhl at a club that, that blood used quite well, that he'll get that refinement. He'll, he would have walked in as Hoiberg's likely direct replacement. Um, he probably would have started at least 25 you know, matches in the Premier League in his first year. I think that's what he would have needed. This one, I just kind of feel like it didn't make much sense. And I think he, he's gone for the name himself and on, on a personal level rather than maybe what would have been best. But that said, he still has the capability of proving everybody wrong. And then I will happily give my words the same way I did with my prediction about the final. So <laughs> that's, that's more than fine. But I just feel like on the, on the surface of it, it's kind of a head scratcher. I just, I just don't personally see it, but that's just my take. Yeah, I assume you agree with that as well, Tom. Yeah, pretty, it's a, it's a strange one. Um, it really is. Like Drew mentioned, Southampton would have been the perfect landing spot, in my opinion, because uh, he would have got, gone to a club where the expectation isn't sky high. He has the perfect manager to be able to mould him into the player he needs to be long term. Juve just seems like the antithesis of antithesis of that, if I can say it, because he's not going to get the time. He's going into a, a team which already has an issue with, you know, 
too many midfielders and, and, and not being able to give, you know, guys in, in years gone by, not being able to give guys like Rabiot and Emre Chan minutes. So with all due respect to Weston McKinney, who I think is a very, very talented player, he hasn't got the reputation that either of those had coming in and he's not going to be given the same amount of time realistically or minutes to be able to prove that in my opinion. So it, it's a strange one. Again, we could both eat our words and it could make perfect sense long-term. Maybe there is a grand plan for him there with under Maurizio Sarri and, and, and who knows, but at the minute it just doesn't seem like, again, it just seems like marketing because I remember a couple of years ago or last year when, when Juventus switched to the, you know, now despised uh, black and white kit with a, you know, with the two sides rather than stripes I remember there was a load of rumors about the American market and how, you know, this was a move because it reminded American fans of, of a referee's uh, uniform and all that kind of nonsense. And if that is true, and, and it, as True mentioned, if it really is a case of, you know, that they, they want to go into the American market, then, then yeah, this, this seems like a pretty transparent uh, deal for me. So, yeah, it's to me, it's, it's, a, it's slightly baffling, to be honest. But again, he's young, lots of potential. So, you know, he, this, this could turn out well, but uh, at the minute, I'm I'm also left uh, scratching my head slightly. Also, I guess from a Schalke standpoint, apparently having financial difficulties, they've just sold an up-and-coming young player who, you know, had a lot of minutes in the Bundesliga last year. For him to go on loan originally, like to start with, with only an option to buy, surely it's not good. It's not making good sense for them as well. I don't know if you agree with that, Drew. I do, but on the on the flip side, I'm not shocked that Shock has made a poor decision in terms of squad building or letting players go. So <laughs> have to jab that a little bit as usual, but <laughs> it just doesn't make from their standpoint as well. It doesn't make much sense. When I mean, obviously, it's always up to the player where where he where he wants to go at the end of the day. But they certainly could have sat him down and said, "Listen, if if you're not going to be here next year, we would prefer that we get financial compensation for it, commensurate with the type of player you are and what we're losing, what we're having to replace." You know, and we're struggling on the books. Whatever the argument could have been tailored to be, it would have made far more sense for them to to, to push for him leaving for for something that they could have used and invested immediately, rather than now scratching their head about how where they're going to get funding from to potentially try to figure out how to not be diabolically poor again this coming season. So it's, uh, every part of this deal just doesn't make any sense from from a non uva perspective, as you guys said before, and, as I, and I agreed with earlier as well, from, from their end, from a business end, it makes perfect sense. They might not, they might not necessarily be concerned with how it affects a player long-term, and, unless, of course, he proves them wrong as well. The, the fact that in the deal, it's not an obligation to buy, that it's, a, it's an option to buy, tells you that they're not even completely convinced that he might make it at the club. So that, again, for me, just tells me that it's just, it, every part of it is just a, a bit bizarre, honestly. Elsewhere in the Bundesliga, a lot happening in Leverkusen, where, of course, we have to mention, again, the Kai Havertz deal. Edging closer every day, according to reports, and today he did not take part in Leverkusen's performance tests. Striker Kevin Volland is also close to completing a move to Monaco in the French League, which would be a big loss. He doesn't want to sign a new contract with his existing deal running out in the summer of 2021. Bayer themselves are now being linked with arrivals, including the permanent signing of striker Patrick Schick, who spent last season on loan at Leipzig. What would he bring to Peter Bosch's side, Tom? I think he'd bring them, uh, first and foremost, just a bit of, I don't know, 
It's a bit of a, a consolation, but it's something at least to build around because if you're going to lose, but if you're potentially going to lose Havertz, uh, Volland, and also Bailey, I mean, I, it's unlikely that they'd lose all three perhaps, but if you are, you're going to need something to give you a bit of hope for the future. And, and I think Schick is a player with a, he's 24 now, but he still has a lot of potential. And I just think he needs to find his home, a long-term home, and he needs to find a position. I think he showed plenty at Leipzig to get uh, Bayer fans excited because he's clearly got immense talent. He just needs to, he just needs to find his role, I guess, and, and find um, regular game time. And, and Bayer would allow him to do that. I think the nature of Leipzig is that uh, it's very rotational and you get your opportunity, but there's no guarantee you're going to be in there week in, week out. Whereas I think Bayer, there's a poten- potential to do that. He could come in and he could, he could very much take, take up where Havertz left off in the sense that you know, towards the end of the season, Kai was almost playing as like a false nine. He was the one getting crucial goals, leading the line, headers. Uh, he could very much fulfill that role, um, which I think would suit him very well in terms of his attributes. Um, and also, if you're going to lose, you know, Volland, you're losing plenty of goals too. So he's not prolific, but he certainly can, can contribute. And, and playing alongside the likes of Diaby, I, th- I think it could be an interesting uh, attack. And you know, it's it's not ideal in terms of if you're buyer, you don't want to be losing three brilliant forwards um, and only bringing in one to replace them. And there's no guarantees he comes in and and becomes a superstar. But uh, but it's something it's something to build towards. And and there's clearly a very good player in there who's shown potential in Italy and shown good potential too with with Leipzig. And yeah, for me, he just needs a, a permanent home. He needs a place he can uh, feel like he's going to be a regular week in week out. And then for me, you'll get the best out of him, uh, as we saw glimpses of last season. So yeah, it's for me, it's a deal that makes a lot of sense. Almost, you know, um, a, a straight swap in terms of the fee, roughly with with Volland, and and uh, yeah, it's a deal that makes a lot of sense because there's clearly a player in there. Yeah, Leipzig themselves are very much interested in bringing him back on loan next season, but uh, for the permanent fee that's been touted by. Roma. Obviously, they're expecting him to leave. How does Julian Nagelsmann go about replacing his contributions, especially, Drew, when they've already lost Timo Werner, obviously? I mean, I guess the thought would be to hope that Huang and, and, and we could pick up a lot of the slack, but losing Timo Werner, as we discussed before, it's, it's almost going to be kind of a, an irreplaceable thing. You, you need a player who can come in and really kind of flirt with that 20-goal mark a season and Schick maybe could have done it if he got if he found form. I agree with a lot of what Tom said about him. He does have, despite being 24, he does still have a lot of potential. He did show quite well for Leipzig when he was there, and I think it would have it, it would have made it would have been a long term thing that they could have made where he didn't involve any amount of settling in at the new club. He, he already was settled. You know, the manager understood him. He was already forming relationships on the pitch, so it would have made sense to to make sure and keep him in there. Um, but I do think that if, if if Schick goes to Leverkusen, then I think that's a you're, you're going to replace Valen's output more or less like for like immediately. So they're not going to be missing out on too much in that front. So I think it's good business for them, but I think Leipzig seem to be kind of screwing the pooch in terms of what they're doing post losing Werner. And I think we all saw in Champions League that they, it was, he was a massive loss in that campaign in the latter stages of it, obviously just that, that dynamism that he has something that Juan can't really replace in his first season Something that Poulsen's not capable of doing because they're very different players and their other forward options just aren't that level of natural goal scoring in and around the area with, with that kind of instinct. So it's going to be a tricky one for them in that regard. A bit more news from Red Bull Arena as well, where reports suggest that 
they're not prepared to match Bremen's valuation for Kosovo International, Milot Rashitschka. Build a report in that Bremen want around 20 million euros for the player plus bonuses. As a man who's watched him a lot last season, Tom, surely he's worth that money from what has been, you know, from how he's played in the last year or so. Yeah, in my opinion, uh, he is. I think he's a tremendous player, uh, particularly given the team he was having to perform in. I mean, it, you know, it wouldn't have been easy for Messi down there at Verde last season, uh, never mind Rashica. But again, I, I think he's a very good player and it's not a bad fee given the current market and the trends. Uh, but again, what this comes down to, in my opinion, is the player wants the Premier League. Um, that's what it appears to be. We know there's interest from Villa, maybe one or two others. Uh, and and I think I think I think if if Leipzig uh, thought that he really wanted to be there, perhaps they would they would put a bit more into it and perhaps be willing to pay a bit more. But uh, I think the player wants to be in the Premier League. I think that's probably his aim. A club like Villa would be a good, uh, I say step up. It is a bit of a sideways move because they're also relegation threatened. But I think it would make a lot of sense. Uh, so yeah, for me, I, I think Leipzig absolutely should be going for a player like that because I think he'd, he'd suit the system very well, and he's the kind of player they need at the moment. Who's going to be? Who's going to provide goals and assists without being prolific? I think, like we mentioned in previous weeks, Leipzig are going to need to get goals from all over the pitch rather than just one figurehead, and he could be ideal for that. But again, for me, I, I've just got a feeling that he wants to be in the Premier League. Uh, I heard from a relatively reasonable source that Villa are, are in negotiations to sign him. So. Uh, yeah, that would be my my uh, prediction as to where he ends up. But uh, but yeah, in my opinion, I think Leipzig should be paying up in the region of twenty million because uh, he's a tremendous player who can offer you a lot. Uh, he isn't just about goals. He isn't just about assists. He's a, he's he's got a bit of both in him. So I like him as a player, and uh, yeah, I, I think he'll get a move. It's just it's just where at the minute. Yeah, next we'll come to another player who's been linked with the Premier League move, and that's. Mines forward Jean Philippe uh, Mateta. He's been linked with Crystal Palace. They've apparently had a first bid of around 15.5 million euros rejected by Mines. They're expecting to come back in the near future with a stronger offer. Um, is he the sort of player that'd fit the Premier League mould for you, Drew? Yeah, I think so. I think if you, if you, if you look at what he could offer, you maybe would assume on balance that he could be maybe what they were hoping Benteke was going to end up being. And I mean, how is that would never really panned out. And I, I think that younger, maybe more fresh, a um, bit more modern center forward for them. So it gives them a bit more um, tactical balance, I think, than someone like a Benteke would. Um, I think it would be interesting to see him link up with someone like Zaha if he stays. Um, Eze just went there, did he not, from... Uh, yeah, yeah from so from QPR. So that's actually a very interesting core of, of forward thinking players that maybe Palace could look to build with. So um, I think it's actually a pretty decent business. And for a fee that isn't going to be astronomically, you know, Liverpool price was, it could be something like 25, 26 million pounds, I think it is. So um, for a 23 year old center forward who still has, I think, a ceiling far higher than maybe people expect to take it a hit. I think it makes a lot of sense for them just for simple business. Um, that's kind of the progressive move Palace should be making if they're going to want to try to consistently break into the discussion of, you know, outsiders looking in for a top seven, a top eight place. Yeah, and we'll finish with uh, another transfer going from the Bundesliga to the Premier League uh, with Freiburg's Robin Kopp moving to 
Leeds United for around 30 million euros. Obviously, last week, Tom, you spoke about him on the podcast. If people didn't catch out, what what will he bring to Leeds? And also, how big a loss is this for Freiburg? Uh, just quickly on, on the Freiburg thing, I don't think it's it's as big as as, uh, as it could be, but simply because this is the kind of thing they exist for. You know, they have a good production line. They spot talent they can sign for cheaply from, uh, you know, from uh, Svai Bundesliga, and they and they bring them through, and then they sell them for a, a handsome profit. So uh, Freiburg will come again. They'll find another player worthy of, of his position. I don't think it will harm them too much. But for Leeds, I, I think it's a very good signing. I think you're getting a very, very good uh, ben White alternative, as I mentioned last week. Um, somebody who's good with the ball at his feet, uh, who reads the game pretty well, uh, not too rash. You know, again, has a lot of potential as well because he, he hasn't really got too much elite experience. Only, I think, two seasons in the Bundesliga. Uh, before that, he was playing in the lower leagues. So, yeah, for, for me, you're, you're getting a player who can who can bring a, a, an immense amount to Leeds. He has all the attributes you'd want from a modern-day centre-back. You know, I know he can play in midfield too, but for me, uh, particularly in, in a Bielsa-style system, uh, his future is very much at centre-back with a more experienced player next to him, um, capable of, you know, playing nice long balls and his distribution is good. So, yeah, for me, it's a move that makes a lot of sense. I think the fee is really good too compared to what they would have had to pay for someone like Ben White. And, uh, yeah, I think it's it's probably a decent deal for both sides because Freiburg get a handsome amount of money and no doubt they'll go out and, and sign the next Robin Clark, you know. So, yeah, uh, a good player, a good coup by Leeds and, a, and, the, and the perfect club for him to be at right now in terms of his development because... Uh, you wouldn't want to throw him into a you know a, a top six team or anything like that. So, yeah, a very good move in my opinion. And perhaps just to finish the podcast tonight on a different note, uh, with a tweet that caught our eye from yesterday, uh, the tweet suggesting that this summer we're seeing a lot of a disproportionate flow of talent out of the Bundesliga and not necessarily into it. And obviously, Drew, we spoke about it before coming online and recording, you wanted to talk about it. Um, do you agree with that? And if so. Why do you think we're seeing this trend? I agree, but I don't. I still think there are very talented players coming into the Bundesliga, particularly younger players. Um, I think a lot of German clubs, including Bayern, are looking to, to quote-unquote smaller markets like France, bringing in players who are 17, 18 years old, where the potential is clear, and they're looking to, to, to move them on in their development. But they might not necessarily stay there. And I think that's what's changed. I think if you look at it, the, the new slash younger generation of, of German players in particular, I don't really think they have that sort of, like that inherent reverence of, of wanting to, to stay in the league for the entire career. A lot of that has to do with how the Premier League has come on over the last you know 20 years, with how, how much publicity it gets, the fact that so many younger German players reference Premier League clubs as clubs they enjoyed watching, players that they enjoyed watching, kind of similar to how, how it was in France. Um, when the Premier League would be first kind of really started in French, but started to go there in Arsene Wenger and kind of a similar mold. Um, and you're seeing that now with, with Timo Werner's move. I think you kind of saw it initially when uh, Schürrle went and um, like uh, Bruce Holby, uh, Max Meyer, all these are, kind of, these are kind of players who, when they moved, they were thought as part of the next generation and, and good young players. And while it didn't pan out for them, I think that was only kind of the first wave of it. And if Havertz goes for that amount of money, it's not that he isn't necessarily making a wrong move. I think the fact that there's so much to gain financially from playing in England while getting that exposure, while playing in what is arguably the best league in the world, I think you're going to see more of it. So while I think 
the return of players coming into the country is still there. You know, Jude Bellingham just went, you know, Yadin Sancho ended up there, you know, Lee just went back. You know, these are all players who, in their own right, have enormous amounts of potential. But I think the question is always going to be, will the Bundesliga be able to retain its top-level talent for long? The, the next question is going to be, how long is it going to be until Alfonso Davies might want to leave Bayern, her, as an example? So I think that, for me, is, is maybe the difference where the league and, and the top teams are always going to have the pull, but they might not have the staying power of players who want to remain in for their careers, and that might be the difference. Yeah, and just your thoughts on uh, your final thoughts, Tom, on this debate as well. Yeah, I, it's completely uh, what Drew said. I, I agree with all of it because um, for me, that, that that's that's the difference maker. Is that I think a few a few years ago, players like uh, Kai Havertz uh, and Timo Werner would never have gone to Chelsea. Uh, I say never. I, I think it would be unlikely. Um, I think. Leon Goretzka's decision to go to Bayern is maybe the last in that trend of, you know, players going from uh, sort of, you know, mid-table Bundesliga clubs, no offence to Schalke, um, to Bayern as a bit of a no-brainer because we, you know, at the time it was was thought that Liverpool were interested, a few other English teams were interested and and he remained uh, steadfast in in plucking for Bayern. And, uh, And we're seeing a bit of a shift now, like I say, with someone like Kai Havertz who who you would have assumed a couple of years ago would have gone to Dortmund or would have gone to more likely Bayern. And that just isn't happening as more as as much. And perhaps that's because the national team is is less stringent on that and less rigid in terms of, you know, I think there, there were times before where you had to be playing in Germany. Otherwise selection was, was not possible or, or not feasible. So that's, that's played a big part. I think as, as Drew mentioned uh, that the, the, the kind of the, the way that, scouting is done is different as well in terms of going to France, going to England, even to bring in the best youngsters, you, you know, you produce them, you, you develop them. And then eventually because they don't necessarily have the same loyalty as, as German players or as Academy players would, they, you know, they, they go off to, they off, they go back to France or they go back to England or maybe they go to Madrid or, or Barcelona. So yeah, for me, it's a combination of those. I think there's perhaps less, slightly less talent, uh, from you know places four to ten uh, you know in terms of when you get sort of below Dortmund is the talent there in the same way it used to be I think you can make a case for it not quite being the same but yeah for me I mean it primarily comes down to German players and uh, and, and Bundesliga talents seeing their futures elsewhere and 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 uh, it says a lot that Sancho for everything that Dortmund have done, he still wants to be playing for Manchester United and and Jude Bellingham. If he get if he reaches those heights, will want the same thing. Uh, Rainier Jesus will want the same thing. He what they want to go back to their to the clubs or to the leagues they came from, uh, and they want to make it big there. And, and until Germany becomes the final destination, um, I think that will be a problem for the league in years to come. But again, I mean, as Drew also mentioned, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the talent we have now and the young players that we have now, because, you know, there's an an exceptional amount of talent and players like Leroy Sané coming in only adds to that. But, um, but there's definitely a trend and there's definitely been a shift and particularly with German talent going abroad. I think it's a notable one and it's one that could see the Bundesliga suffer in years to come, I fear. Well, that concludes tonight's episode of the Get German Football News podcast. Again, a big thanks to both Drew and Tom for all their help and expertise, as always. In the meantime, remember to follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with all things German football. Stay safe and thanks again for tuning in.